opportunity and joy. They're not just changing their world. Ours will change too. Tales from the Arab Spring was presented by Jeremy Bowen and produced by Mark Savage and Cara Swift. Now, in 2002, John Osborne won a competition on John Peel's Radio 1 show and his prize was a box of records that took eight years to listen to. And in a moment, we'll hear his story all about his love for radio. First, though, we're going to look ahead to you and yours with Winifred Robinson. Today, we'll be reporting on a spate of thefts of car number plates from around the country. Some police forces are offering free anti-theft screws in response and it's all being linked to a rise in the theft of fuel from garage forecourts. What you should bear in mind if you're buying a mobile phone for a child, we'll have advice on that. And how UK egg producers fear that they'll be undercut by overseas producers who are defying new EU laws on welfare, but will still be allowed to sell their eggs to us. Winifred, thank you. All that coming up at midday today. But first, it's time for John Peel's Shed, an ode to radio, those records, and anyone who's ever sought solace in the wireless. Here in the sunshine, cold and empty the Hello everybody, this is a show called John Peel's Shed and its origins are in this box of records I won in a competition on John Peel's Radio 1 show in 2002. Now one night I was listening and John Peel suggested that people could write in with a couple of sentences to explain why they enjoyed listening to his show. And together with his producer they would compile all of the answers together and use them as the submission for that year's Sony Radio Awards. And as an incentive, he said that a prize for the best answer would be a box of records from his shed. So I thought about reasons I enjoyed listening to John Peel. And on a scrap of paper, I wrote down records you want to hear, played by a man who wants you to hear them. And I found an envelope and a stamp and I went and posted it that night and didn't really think about it again until a couple of weeks later when I got a phone call from John Peel's producer, Louise, to say that I'd won. And it was really exciting. We arranged for this box of records to be delivered. Two of John Peel's friends collected my box of records from John Peel's shed and drove them in a van from his house in Suffolk to my student flat in Norwich. Now, looking back, that's probably why I won that prize. That's quite a short distance. <laughs> it's convenient. And these two guys, they carried the box of records into my front room. And excitedly, the three of us looked through to see what was in there, to pick out anything that looked exciting or something that we recognised. And we found artists like Screaming Lord Such. I'm a rockabilly man! He was the founder of the Monster Raving Looney Party, uh, with policies that included having more than one Monopolies Commission, a Scottish Parliament on wheels and to abolish January and February to make winter shorter. <laughs> Junior Delgado from Kingston, Jamaica, who passed away in 2005 while recording new material. No walking refuse, working for midnight blues. We found albums which just had intriguing artwork and sleeve notes, like the Mahir Shalal Hashbaz. <laughs> 
They were a group of Japanese jazz musicians who made their records on vineyards. <laughs> But most excitingly, there was Oizone, a boyzone punk cover band. <laughs> It's not time to make a change. Just relax, take it easy. You're still young. That's your fault. There's so much you have to know. And I read out their track listing as well as covering boyzone songs like Words, Love Me for a Reason, and Father and Son. There were versions of Cell A V by Bewitched and Earth Song by Michael Jackson. And these two guys, they were really excited by this, and they said, "You've got to play Oizone. We've got to hear what they sound like." And I had to admit that I didn't have a record player. <laughs> I didn't know I was about to win this cool box of records, and they seemed really disappointed by this. So I suggested that instead we go to the pub round the corner from my flat, and we spent the afternoon in there drinking and talking about music and about John Peel and our early memories of first discovering his show. Now I admitted that I didn't really like John Peel's show when I first heard it when I was about 14 years old. It was a bit too loud for me. Uh, there was too much reggae and drum and bass. I always preferred Steve Lamac. I still had my milk teeth when it came to music. I liked Blur and Oasis, and I had the first Spice Girls album, <laughs> and I really liked it.、Um, <laughs> but there must have been something about John Peel's show that made me want to persevere with it. I wanted to be a John Peel listener, and so, in the same way that teenagers will occasionally drink beer, hoping that one day they might like the taste. This is what I did with John Peel's Radio One show, and then one night he played the Smiths, and without wanting to sound like the ultimate teenage cliche, that changed my life forever. If I've ever had anything as dramatic as an epiphany, it was that moment in my teenage bedroom, with my Rachel from Friends poster on the wall, <laughs> my muddy football boots in the corner, and my copy of On the Road that I still haven't read. <laughs> The song was "How Soon Is Now." You might be familiar with it. Morrissey sings, "There is a club if you'd like to go. You could meet someone you love, who really loves you. But you go and you stand on your own, and you leave on your own, and you go home, and you cry, and you want to die." I thought, "Hang on, that's the way that I feel every time I leave the house." <laughs> I'd never even heard of the Smiths. I just thought. That bloke who's singing a bit weird on the radio has somehow tapped into my innermost thoughts. See, I lived a very sheltered life at the time. I was at sixth form, and I was about to go to university to do business studies. And after that, my plan was to be a businessman. It was as vague as that. <laughs> and it's mainly because my hero was Mike Baldwin in Coronation Street. <laughs> I like the way that he'd go to the bar, he'd order a scotch. He'd pay the barmaid with a fiver and tell her she could keep the change. <laughs> to me, that was the epitome of success, <laughs> and I wanted everything that Mike Baldwin had. He had his own business, and he drove a Jaguar, and he lived in a luxury studio apartment, and he had a girlfriend who was far too young for him. And I thought that's my kind of role model. Now, looking back, that was a ridiculous plan. I, I was shy and nervy as a teenager. I didn't like meeting new people or going to big cities. I wasn't even particularly good at business studies. 
But I didn't think that any of that mattered because there'll be this thunderbolt moment. There'll be this metamorphosis uh, where one morning you just wake up either on your 18th birthday or the day you've left your mum and dad's house and you've suddenly acquired these life skills and this maturity and confidence and an innate understanding of what makes a convincing handshake. Luckily, my plan to be a businessman didn't get the chance to progress much further because at about the same time that I first heard the Smiths, we started to read Philip Larkin poems in our English literature class. They both shared this brittle, fragile outlook on life. And looking back now, I realised that it's the first time I'd ever been aware that you're allowed to be a grown-up and be shy. I'd never realised that before. And it was such an exciting discovery. It meant that I didn't have to change. I could stay the way I was. And I felt so much more similar to Philip Larkin and Morrissey than I did to Mike Baldwin <laughs> and to the others in my business studies class and to my next-door neighbour who worked for British Gas and had three Alsatians. <laughs> I became a regular John Peel listener and this really helped me with this transition. And it wasn't just the music that John Peel played that I loved about his show. It was the emails and letters he read out from his listeners. There was Alan decorating his dining room. There was Ian who recorded the show at night and listened to it on his milk float the next morning. There was Duncan and Katie doing a different jigsaw puzzle on their kitchen table every night while listening to John Peel. And Jamie making dinosaur sculptures in his basement. <laughs> And soon I found myself in a routine, just as so many of John Peel's listeners were. I'd make sure that whenever his show was on, I'd make sure that all of my work had been finished that evening, so that at 10pm I would have nothing to do but listen to John Peel. I started to borrow books from my dad's bookshelves for the first time. Simon Armitage, Ian McEwan, Graham Greene short stories. And it was at that desk that I first started to write poems and stories myself, all of them influenced by the music and lyrics that were coming through my headphones. And it was there that I first heard bands like The Ramones and Joy Division and Hefner. And the more I listened, the more it legitimised what I was doing. And I felt part of something in this community of John Peel listeners in a way that I'd never felt part of something at school or at sixth form. So radio has always played a big part in my life. I remember when I was about eight years old, I was in the car with my mum and we were listening to Terry Wogan. And he read out a letter from a lady who had sent her grandchildren Christmas cards. And she'd written inside, buy your own presents. <laughs> and only weeks later found the gift vouchers she'd forgotten to enclose. <laughs> I remember when Steve Wright in the afternoon read out the factoid that St John's Wood is the only tube station that doesn't contain any letters of the word mackerel. <laughs> that blew my mind. And one night I was listening to Tommy Boyd's show on Talk Sports and a lady phoned in to tell him the story about a time she bought a Kit Kat at a train station. And she got on the train, opened up her Kit Kat, snapped off the first piece and put the rest of the Kit Kat on the table in front of her. But sitting opposite was a skinhead. And without saying anything or making eye contact, he reached across, snapped a piece off for himself, put it in his mouth and put the rest of the Kit Kat on the table in between the two of them. And she was really intimidated. She didn't know quite how to respond. So tentatively, she picked up the Kit Kat, snapped off the third piece for herself and ate it put the rest of the Kit Kat on the table, and he did the same. Put the last bit of Kit Kat in his mouth and put the empty wrapper back on the table. And she got off at her stop, and when she went into her handbag, she found the Kit Kat that she'd bought at the train station 
Still untouched. A couple of years after graduating, I found myself doing data entry on minimum wage for a window company just outside Norwich. And it wasn't quite how I'd imagined my life would span out. But what I really hated about this job was that I had to share a desk with two colleagues. There was Alan Medlicott, who was a tubby man with a bright red face, and he would do things like tap numbers into a calculator and then put his head in his hands and say, oh, God, no. <laughs> Every day. <laughs> and next to him was Craig, who was 18 years old, and he had a side part in, like, a bank manager, and he um, had a pension plan. And what I really hated about this working situation is that none of us ever spoke to each other. And I don't mean it was one of those comfortable silences that you can sometimes establish in a working environment. This was awkward. In that 10 months that the three of us worked together, there wasn't a single hello, a goodbye, it's nice weather, isn't it? Nothing. But then one day I noticed that across the open plan office, there was another temp who was doing his data entry while listening to headphones. And I thought, well, that would save a lot of problems. The next day I just brought in a few of my favourite CDs and listened to them as I was doing my data entry. And the day went so much more quickly. And then one night I was scrolling through the presets of my digital radio. And I realised how much radio existed that I had never listened to and would likely never get the chance to hear. And so that's when I had the idea that I would listen to a different radio station every day. From the moment I woke up through my day at Anglia Windows until I went to bed that night, I would listen to a different radio station. See, my life was boring. <laughs> And I was hoping that this might be my way out of it. And so the next morning, uh, I decided at random that my first station would be Virgin Radio, which is now Absolute Radio. Um, my alarm went off at 7.30 in the morning, as it did do every day. But this time, as I got dressed and waited for the toaster pop, I listened to Christian O'Connell's Breakfast Show. And he explained that the theme of that morning show was weddings. Whoever phoned in with the best story about a wedding would win two first-class tickets to New York to attend the premiere of the film 27 Dresses. <laughs> so for the rest of the morning, I listened to Virgin Radio listeners with their tedious anecdotes trying to win this prize with their stories about weddings. And it was boring. <laughs> but then Sandra phoned. Sandra said to Christian that when she was 19 years old, she was looking after her sister's house because her sister had gone travelling for a few months and there was a knock at the door and she answered it and there was a man holding a baby and he asked for her sister and she said, I'm sorry, she's gone away. We don't know when we're expecting her back. And he said, that's fine, don't worry. And he walked off down the driveway. But Sandra explained to Christian that this was the saddest man she had ever seen. And she called out to him, did he want to come in for a cup of tea? And he said, yes, please. And at her kitchen table, he explained that his girlfriend had recently left him. And she'd started going out with someone new. And the two of them were going to move away together and take the baby boy with them. And he was so desperate about not losing contact with his son. So he'd been to see a lawyer that morning. But the lawyer had explained that he didn't really stand a chance. Custody would automatically go to the mother who was in a stable relationship with a good job. But as a caveat, the lawyer added... The slight chance you would have is if you were married. But this guy explained to Sandra that he didn't really know that many women, certainly none, who would want to marry him. And she said, well, why don't you ask me? And he went down on one knee and said, will you marry me? 
You have to be joking, Christian O'Connell said. I was standing at my front door with my house keys poised. I needed to leave to go to work, but I couldn't. I was glued to this radio show. I had to know what happened next to Sandra. And she said, six days later, we were married. Christian said, but surely you didn't love each other. And she said, well, we did talk about that and agree that it could be a problem at some stage. <laughs> but the little boy had to come first. And that was 26 years ago. And we've got four children together now. Luckily, Christian O'Connell then went to an advert break and so I could leave my house, get to work as quickly as I could. I was about 10 minutes late in the end, but I thought, well, Alan Medlicott and Craig, they're not exactly going to say anything anyway, so <laughs> it doesn't really matter. And I plugged my radio in, put my headphones on, and people were still phoning and emailing in about Sandra, saying that, like me, they were late for work because they had to find out what happened. And they were saying that she had restored their faith in humanity. And so I started to ask my friends and family which different stations they like to listen to. Everyone had a suggestion. And the station which was mentioned most frequently was Resonance FM, a community station in London. And at 11pm, there was a show called The Glass Shrimp, which was two presenters playing obscure music from Ukrainian electro through to Half Man, Half Biscuit and John Cooper Clark. The hipster and his hired hat Drive a borrowed car Yellow socks and a pink cravat Nothing loudy dare Residence FM is a community station in London. I wonder if there's anything similar in Norwich. So I went online and I found out that there was Future Radio. And so I emailed them about getting in touch. And I got a reply from Simone, who was one of three full-time members of staff. And she told me that she would love to talk to me about radio, about getting involved. And so I went in two days later. And as soon as I was at Future Radio, I realised that I was surrounded by something special. Simone took me on a tour and I could hear the kind of music being played from Studio A was the Libertines and the Pixies and Los Campesinos. And Simone said to me, what kind of music show would you like to present? And I hadn't really thought about it, but I said, well, in 2002, I won this box of records from John Peel Shed. Maybe I could do a show where I played the best tracks from that collection. So that's when I decided. I went home with my head buzzing with ideas of what this show could be like. And I got in and I put a record on. And as soon as I could, I booked a week off from Anglia Windows, so that instead of doing my beloved data entry, I could go to Future Radio with my rucksack of records, where Simone taught me how to use the faders and the decks, and that headphones are called cans. And a corner of my front room became devoted to this box of records. It's where it became littered with takeaway trays and empty bottles of wine and notebooks where I was writing the names of the tracks I wanted to play, because I decided I was going to listen to every track in the collection because I knew how lucky I was to own this box of records and it seemed a shame that the only people who ever listened to those records were me and anyone who happened to be round at my flat so I stayed up late all night every night listening to this tracks from this record collection one of my favorite albums in the collection is by Atom and his package and 
a punky band with quirky lyrics. And titles of Atom and his package songs include Tim Allen Isn't That Funny, <laughs> Pumping Iron for Enya, <laughs> and the Palestinians are not the same thing as the Rebel Alliance jackass. But I found out that it's not a band, it's just one man, Adam, who had to retire from the music industry when his asthma got too bad. And now he's a chemistry teacher in Pennsylvania. This kind of thing fascinated me. There were so many hopes and dreams in my box of records. Planning the radio programme gave me this confidence as well. I loved having this purpose at home, listening to the records from John Peel's Shed, because sometimes music is hard to enjoy passively. It can need a context. And this was something community radio could supply. When I got back to work after my week at Future Radio, I realised that something had changed. When I arrived at the office at nine o'clock every morning, I wasn't just shuffling to my desk awkwardly, staring at the carpet. I was in a good mood. I was smiling and chatty. I was saying hello to people I would otherwise have ignored. Simple things like saying good morning to people. Not Alan Medlicott and Craig, they were dead to me. <laughs> And on one occasion, I needed to do some stapling. And I thought, well, I'm not going to borrow a stapler from just anyone. I'm going to borrow one from Poppy. Now, Poppy was the most beautiful girl in the office. Everyone was slightly in love with her. Uh, she had long blonde hair and she often wore bright red tights. And she drove a Toyota Yaris and she was six months older than me. I know because I'd looked up her date of birth on the intranet. <laughs> and I'd never spoken to her, but I thought, well, let's go and see what happens if I try. And I walked to her desk and I said, can I borrow your stapler, please? And she said, yes. Not unreasonably. <laughs> and I went back to my desk and I did my stapling and I returned it to her and I said, thank you. And I thought, well, that's something. <laughs> and the next day, we passed each other in the corridor as we had done every day, but this time she said hello to me. And I said hello back. And the next day, it was the first sunny day of spring. And I noticed that Poppy had gone outside on her lunch break and she was sitting on the bench outside the office eating her packed lunch. So I thought I would go and join her. And sitting next to her as she ate her pasta salad from her Tupperware box, we just sat there in silence until she got a Kit Kat out. And I said, I know a funny story about a Kit Kat. <laughs> I told her the story on Tommy Boyd's show and I told her about St John's Wood and mackerel. I didn't tell her about Terry Wogan and Buy Your Own Presents. I was saving that one for special. <laughs> and the next day, I noticed that Belle and Sebastian were doing a gig in Norwich. And I thought, I've got to go and ask Poppy if she wants to come and see Belle and Sebastian with me. It would be the perfect thing to do. And it seemed realistic because we were getting on well. We were making each other laugh. And all girls love Belle and Sebastian. That's something I've learnt about music. <laughs> Did she do it? Was she scared? Was she bored? So the next day she was sitting on a bench in the sunshine, eating her pasta salad, and I went to join her. But I was just too scared to ask if she wanted to go to the gig with me. And I went home so disappointed. There was nothing I wanted more than to watch Belle and Sebastian with Poppy. 
And the next day we passed each other in the corridor as we were still doing every day. And she said hello and I said hello, but again, I didn't dare ask her. And the next day it was a team meeting and I sat in the same chair that I always sat at the back by myself, but she came and sat next to me and there was a big, long silence before the meeting started. And I knew I should have been making the most of that silence and asking her if she wanted to go and watch Bell and Sebastian with me. And I didn't, and I knew that it was my missed opportunity. I had to find the courage and I just hadn't. And I went I went home so disappointed, but then the next day I was sacked. <laughs> and I never saw her again. <laughs> Being unemployed wasn't too much of a problem. It meant I had time to devote to doing my favourite things in life, reading and writing and listening to loud music. But before long, I needed to find a job again. This time, I found one in a warehouse of a clothes shop in Norwich. And there were just the two of us who worked in there. It was me and a lady called Joanna. She'd worked there for quite a few years. And on my first day, she said to me, uh, it can be painful and it's tiring and it's stressful and the management treats us badly. And I really hate it. I really want to quit. But the good thing is we get to listen to Radio 1 every day. And I thought about quitting there and then. But something surprising happened in that warehouse. Just like with Stockholm Syndrome, where people who've been kidnapped fall in love with their captors. I started to really enjoy listening to Radio 1. I didn't mind the repetitive playlist, and I really liked even listening to Chris Moyles. I could see why people would want to listen to it every day. And so for the first time since I was a teenager, Radio 1 was playing a big role in my life. And Joanna told me that she'd been working there for like 15 years and in all of that time she'd never even considered listening to anything other than Radio 1. And I realised it would have been in that warehouse where Joanna will have been working, sitting on a kickstool, putting security tags into skirts when bombs went off on the London Underground, when planes crashed into the World Trade Centre. I could imagine her hearing the breaking news. She'd have rushed out onto the shop floor to tell her friends and her colleagues that something had happened and they would all have stopped work, come into the warehouse, crowded around the radio and listened. What I thought was the antithesis of everything good about radio was actually the exact reason radio can be so special. Listening to the same station while you're at work, sharing moments with people you care about. That's where Joanna would have been when it was announced that John Peel had died when Teenage Kicks was played every hour and the presenters were barely able to articulate their words. I was living in Vienna when I heard that John Peel had died. I was teaching English for a year in a school and I finished the lesson and I checked my phone and I had eight text messages all telling me the same piece of news. A couple of weeks later, Radio 1 had their first ever John Peel night, where they devoted their entire schedules to the music loved by John Peel. And they had guests like the White Stripes and Damon Albarn playing some songs and talking about the influence John Peel had had on them. Now, I couldn't listen to this show because I was in Vienna and it was before the iPlayer. But I didn't realise at the time that my dad had realised that this evening was going ahead. And so, without me knowing it, he got hold of a stack of cassettes and he stayed up from 8pm till 2 in the morning, not missing a beat. Every 45 minutes he would get up, turn the tape over, press play and record, label it all up. And now my dad, by his own admission, describes the music that John Peel played as a racket. And so the thought of him doing this until two in the morning and then he posted it to me and I opened up this package and I realised what he'd done and my eyes just filled with water. Now, I couldn't listen to any of these tapes because I didn't have a tape player. 
But again, that didn't really seem to matter because they represented something so much more. And I looked around at where I was standing. I was in the front room of the cottage I lived in the Vienna woods. And I thought, well, I've come a long way from Mike Baldwin's luxury studio apartment. <laughs> and the next time that I listened to any of these records was that day that I got back from Future Radio after talking to Simone and deciding to do this show where I played the best tracks in the collection. And I recorded five one-hour episodes. And they went out over a year ago in May 2010. And you could listen to them across Norwich on the Future Radio FM frequency or anywhere in the world online. Or you can download the podcasts for free. And in all of that time, I've only ever had one person get in contact with me. <laughs> it was on Twitter. It was a guy who's a window cleaner in Norwich called Pongo Twizzleton. And he said, hello, John. I spent the day cleaning windows and listening to your radio shows. And it's the best day at work I've had for months. And I thought, well, that will do for me. John Peel's Shed was written and performed by John Osborne and was produced by John Pocock. And John Peel's Shed was a one-off radio recording and a full track list of all the records played can be found on the Radio 4 website. Coming up after the news on Longwave and the news and ships on, uh, uh, well, the other way around, apologies, it'll be you and yours. Is it realistic for us to try to protect nature in the face of burgeoning numbers of people or will wildlife and habitats continue inevitably to decline? A special edition of BBC Radio 4's programme examining nature and the challenges of conservation. If the planet can't renew the life support systems, we're not going to keep going. Including a guest performance from the writer A.L. Kennedy. Wolves are native too, and bears. Should we risk ourselves returning them to their place? Saving species, sustaining life, on Friday evening at 8.00.